0: Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently published a new book titled Bible Crawling, Finding Joy in God by Journaling Through the Psalms. You can find Olin's book on Wipfandstock.com. That's wipf as well as Amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. And thus far, especially if we had started with Psalm 1 and gone you know, chronologically through the Psalms, which we haven't done, but if, if we had, primarily what we would have found so far would just be <coughs> Psalms of prayer, Psalms of meditation. A little bit of praise and worship sprinkled in. When you come to Psalm 8, you primarily find... A psalm of worship. It's it's like a a hymn, essentially. And it's the first one that we find in the Psalter. So we're going to look at this this morning. It's fairly famous and well-known. Psalm 8, starting verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you take thought of him, and the Son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth! So, the first point would be this: that all of creation shows God's splendor. The theme of the book it really comes out in the very first phrase and the last phrase is exactly repeated. And notice, O Lord, our Lord. You are probably familiar with this, but when in almost all English translations, when you see the word Lord. In the Old Testament, in all caps, what that means is it's translating the Hebrew word Yahweh. It was God's personal name that He had revealed to the nation of Israel. It's God saying, I'm your personal God. I'm your spiritual husband. I'm the God that makes covenant, and I keep covenant. I love you. I save you. So David is starting out saying, Yahweh, you're our sovereign. You're our ruler. You're our personal God. You're our master. You're our creator. It's very interesting. In some sense, God has tied His identity to His people. God says, if you really want to know me, if you really want to know my heart, what you have to know is I'm a Savior. I'm a God that goes after people, that I love people, that I forgive people, that I live in covenant with them. That's how you really understand my heart. But just think about how much there is today uh, in, in culture, in the media, probably in your own children, about trying to find their identity. And, and, and listen that's an important thing to understand who am I really what gives me my sense of identity and there's so much in the world today that's trying to say either look out look out at what everybody else is saying you know read, read the crowd and define your identity based on what would be accepted and that's probably more the culture that a lot of us grew up in the culture today is much more just look in look in and see what do you feel what do you think what do you desire and that's how you define your essential identity but biblically speaking, the best way to understand your core identity is look up. Look up to your Creator. He's your Master. He's your Maker. He gets to ultimately define your identity. And so the more that we know who God is, the more that we can understand Him. In a sense, what these first couple of verses are saying is this. If you want to know God, yes, look at the way He relates to His people, but also look at all of creation. All of creation reveals something about the splendor of God. The glory of God, the goodness of God, the beauty of God, the magnificence of God, the strength of God. And you can look at the biggest thing in the universe, the sunshine, the planet Jupiter, whatever it is, in the sky at night. Or you can look at the seemingly most small and insignificant thing, even like a little baby. And the intricacies of the complexity of a human being show us something about the wisdom, the majesty, the beauty of God. Um, we must be wise to slow down to take notice to worship God and in a sense not only is that where identity is formed that's where our identity gets healed when we're going through hardship in life and maybe you get kind of knocked silly by life and you have confusing moments what's going on why am I being treated this way there's a sense in which looking at God going back to a place of worship that's what brings you back to understanding who you really are how God has made you That's where true rest comes from. That's where true knowledge of yourself, it's where true joy comes from. He's our Savior, He's our Lord, He's our Maker, He's our Master, our Defender. Now, the best of God's creation, it shows off His strength. It shows off His power. Look at verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him And the Son of Man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than God. That's the most literal translation. I know some translations will say a little lower than the angels. It's literally, you have made him a little lower than God. And you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the sea. So, the middle of this psalm is really saying mankind, human beings, is the pinnacle of God's creation. And you, you really, if you want to look at creation, right, we, sometimes we talk about special revelation, that's the Bible, general revelation, that's creation. If you wanted to just look at general a revelation and learn something about God, the best place to look is not the sun, the moon, it's human beings. Because there's a very real sense, it, it's almost shocking to say, it would almost be blasphemous to say this if it wasn't written down in the Bible, but there's a very real sense in which God has said, I have made human beings my, my co-regents, my viceroys, my stewards of creation. I want them to run creation for me. That's, that's one of the reasons God made us... A lot of people think when David wrote this psalm, this hymn of worship, psalm chapter 8, that that he was reflecting on, he was meditating on Genesis chapter 1 and 2. That in a sense he was thinking about Genesis 1 and 2 and that God made human beings as the pinnacle and said, I want you to steward all creation. And there's a sense of shock and awe. I mean, David's like, I look at all these gigantic things that you have made. And even just think about the animal kingdom. He's talking about it a lot in this psalm. It doesn't matter. You're like, well, a whale is a lot bigger than a human being. A grizzly bear is probably a lot stronger. An eagle might have better eyesight or can fly faster or whatever. But he's like, doesn't matter. There's something about human beings, because we're made in the image of God, to reflect his character, his goodness, his love, his wisdom, all that's right about God, we reflect. Okay? His breath is in our lungs. There's uh, C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia, Book 3, Prince Caspian. Um, Is that what it's called? Or it's called The the Voyage of the Dawn Treader? Um, That's the one with Prince Caspian in it, right? I I think I've got this right. I've got the quote right, all right, because I, I Googled it and got it just right. Aslan, speaking to some of the human beings, says this. I think he's speaking maybe to Prince Caspian. You come from the Lord Adam, and the Lady Eve, said Aslan. And that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar. i just pause there. There's a sense in which just knowing I'm created as a human being in the image of God, that ought to be honor. I mean, the deepest foundation of identity. Again, think about all the identity politics in the world today. The The most valuable thing, the first thing that we should be able to say is, Every human being is made in the image of God. Period. Full stop. That's why we honor them. That's why we value them. Right? Not their skin color. Not their politics. Not their nationality, ethnicity, their last name. Not their accomplishments. If they're a tiny infant in the womb, they have purpose, identity. Why? Because they've been made in the image of God. And God has delegated so much power, so much authority to human beings to rule the world for him. It's crazy. I'm going to use what may be a very dangerous illustration here, but I'll use it anyway. I had heard, I have been told, I'm not an expert in college football, and I'm certainly not an expert in Alabama football, but I've been told part of what makes Saban such a great coach is that he's a great delegator, that he hires other people that are better at different things than he is, and he says you be in charge of this, and he's got all these ex-coaches on his staff, and that's what makes them so effective. Now, whether you love or hate Nick Saban, you have to have some respect for the man. They're doing something right down there, right? Okay? We can debate if you love him or hate him after class. But the point is this. There's a sense in which God has said, I will delegate running the universe to human beings. Now, there's at least one problem with this illustration. If Saban's out there looking for the best coaches he can hire to lead his program, you're like, yeah, but God hired me, so to speak, to work in his program? I don't think I fit the bill. I don't don't think I'm very worthy. I don't think I merit it. And yet that's what God has done nonetheless. Now, I want us to focus a little bit more in verses 2 through 5. Because here's where you really get the meat of this psalm especially this strange phrase in verse 2. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength. Because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. And just a couple thoughts here. Okay? Um, verse 4. When it says that you take thought of him, that doesn't mean that God is sitting on the throne in heaven just kind of arbitrarily like, oh yeah, remember those people we made down there? When the Bible speaks of God remembering, when the Bible speaks of God thinking of people, it always has the idea of he's thinking of them with action. He's thinking of them with care. He's thinking of them, I'm I'm going to move towards them. I'm going to help them. So just think about how encouraging that is. God has ordained different ways, responsibilities that he's given us, but he hasn't left us alone in those. He said, I will be there to embrace you, to help you. And then verse 2. Again, my, my guess is that none of us are reading Psalm 8 for the first time this morning. right? Many of us have probably sang it before in some praise and worship service. Or maybe if you're, you know, uh, far enough along in age, you went to a Sandy Patty concert at once in your life or something like that, and you even heard this song sing. But is verse 2 not a little strange, right? I think here's one of the dangerous things about the way that we often read the Bible, myself included. We can read passages, we can memorize passages, and there can be verses like this that are kind of famous. And then if somebody says, what does that verse really mean? you're like, yeah, I have no clue, right? So I really want us to go down deep in verse 2 because in some sense, here's what verse 2 is saying. The weakest parts of God's creation, they still show off His strength. Even more specifically, I think you could say this, they show off His strategy. Okay? It's obvious. Like the best parts of God's creation show off His strength. But even the weakest parts show off His genius. Now, Adam and Eve made on day one to rule and to reign. Right? Subdue the earth. Build a culture. Multiply. Expand my glory over all creation. The best theologians think that Satan and sin entered the garden on day one. St. Augustine thinks Adam and Eve made it about six hours. I don't know exactly where he gets the six hours, okay? But most theologians have good reason to think it was day one when Adam and Eve screwed the whole thing up. So all of a sudden, the pinnacle of God's creation... I mean, all of creation has been marred by our sinfulness. If you go read Romans 8, it says that. It's all subjected to futility because of our sin. But only human beings willingly rebelled. It wasn't like all the grizzly bears and whales staged a rebellion, right? <laughs> we did. And I, some of you all probably heard me share this illustration. One of my sons at one point when he was very young growing up, and, you know, he had done something wrong. He was about to get a spanking. and he's like... Dad, it's not my fault. You know, it's Adam's fault. Dad, that's a good Presbyterian kid right there, right? I mean, that, that, that's a 201 excuse. And I said, well, buddy, uh, you know, the problem is if you or I had been in Adam's role, we would have done the same thing. So you can't blame it on Adam. And he's like, not me, Dad. If I had been the first guy in the garden, I'd have never eaten that forbidden fruit. And I said, you know what, buddy? I've been living with you long enough to know you'd have eaten it quicker than Adam did. <laughs> So you're still getting this thinking. Um, We've ruined creation. I didn't read the whole C.S. Lewis quote earlier intentionally, so here's the full quote. You come of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, said Aslan, and that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. Be content. Here's part of what David is saying, more important, the Holy Spirit is saying through David, in Psalm chapter 8, verse 2, even through the weakest part of creation, even the most sinful broken parts, God's strategy is I can still win through weakness. I can still accomplish all my good purpose even through the weakest display of it. You ever heard maybe two guys kind of trash talking and somebody says, man, I could beat you with one hand tied behind my back. That type of attitude, that's a little bit of what's going on here. I have three boys, one girl. girl's the baby. And so this was when they were pretty young. I'm trying to remember the exact ages, but maybe like, you know, I had a nine-year-old boy, a six-year-old boy, uh, what would that make it, four-year-old boy, and maybe Sophia was about two. And sometimes we'd be like, hey, we're going to have like family wrestling time. Mom never participated, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Moms don't tend to like that. And so it would always end up being me and Sophia against all the boys. And they'd be like, no, this time we're going to take y'all. And the way, it it always ended the same. I would eventually be able to get all three of the boys on the ground in a pile. And I would basically say, Sophia, you sit in the corner until I get them on the ground. Because I didn't want her to get hurt. And then once they were on the ground and they're still like kind of yelling and trash talking, I'd say, Sophia, come over here and kick them in the stomach, you know. And uh, (laughs) she's over there just kind of wearing them out. Now, the point is, Sophia didn't really do anything, right? But I was able to, and y'all may say, this guy's a terrible parent. Maybe so, But the point was, I was able to use my strength to subdue the enemies but then put Sophia in a position where she felt like she was a victor. Does that make sense? In a sense, when we walk with the Lord, that's what He does for us. We do have a part to play. God has given us a brain. God has given us a body. God has given us a responsibility. God has given us a stewardship. We need to do the best we can with whatever that stewardship that he has given us. But we need to know the whole time. It's like, hey, God, I'm the two-year-old little girl in this illustration. And you're the big, strong daddy. And if my job is to kick somebody in the stomach, I'm going to kick them as hard as I can. But if you don't do your part, I'm a goner. My part will be totally ineffective. I need you to show up and do the part that really matters. God likes to win through weakness. Now, flip to Matthew chapter 21, because this psalm is quoted and referred to numerous times in the New Testament. Probably familiar with some of them. We're going to look at just a couple of them. So, Matthew chapter 21, Palm Sunday. Matthew chapter 21. Let's just pick up in verse 15. When the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they became indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Now just pause. This is a total side note, but I love it. The Pharisees, if nothing else, liked to proclaim that they were experts on the Old Testament. Some of them likely had the entire Old Testament memorized. So just think about the salt and the wound it must have been. Jesus said this kind of thing to them many times. Hey, you never read Psalm 8? You know, he, he went out of his way to humble and embarrass these guys because they had gone out of their way to set themselves up as these kind of arrogant, self-righteous leaders, and they were leading the people astray. And Jesus was trying to protect the innocent that were being led astray. Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. Now just think about what's going on here. The word "hosanna" literally is from the Hebrew. It just means like "save us." It was a, it was a, it was originally a prayer: "Save us, deliver us, help us." But then it also turned into like a form of of praise to say, "You are the savior." And they were essentially what were the crowds saying, including just the little children, the little babies. Here's the Messiah. Here's the Savior. The Pharisees, with all their supposed knowledge, missed it. Now, how much of it was blindness, deadness? How much of it, this is, I think the more you read and study the Gospels, the more you see it. It wasn't just blindness and deadness. It was a willful blindness. It's too obvious who he is. I just don't want to see it. So I refuse to see it. And the infants were getting it right. The babies, they're just shouting in the temple. Another side note, but I think a really important one. Do you realize that some little two or three year old kid in the nursery, learning the children's catechism, it's like, who is God? God is a spirit and has no body as we do. In some sense, has more true knowledge than Richard Dawkins with all that he might know about all his areas of science. Right you now, if there's a science exam, Richard Dawkins will win. And, and where his science is legitimate, we need to respect that. But I saw an interview with him, I don't think it was that long ago, with Pierce Morgan. And, you know, Pierce Morgan was just saying, where did everything come from? And he's like, I, I don't know, I don't know, that's, that's not my field. You know, you got to ask somebody else. And at least he had the humility to say, I don't really know but he doesn't think it's God. God loves to use weak people to accomplish his works in his way and his timing. If the Pharisees had had one ounce of wisdom, one ounce of real genuine humility, they would have, at minimum, they would have shut their mouths and just said, we don't know. Maybe they would have asked some questions like some of the better, like Nicodemus did. I'm totally confused. This doesn't make sense. least he was on the path. Or best, maybe they would have just joined the praises. Hosanna. Now, I was meeting this past week with a campus outreach staff guy and uh, trying to help him think about his role, his future, some of that stuff. And I've known this guy for a while. I've known this guy since he was a student. He's not the most gifted leader in the universe. And uh, so we were talking about what role should he have or not have, what would be best, and listen, different people have different gifts, right? But, you know, John MacArthur has this great quote where John MacArthur said, uh, everybody's a teacher. It's just that you might have a smaller classroom. And I think that same principle applies in leadership. And so as I was talking to this guy, said, listen, should you be leading staff people? I'm not sure. That's not, you know, somebody else needs to answer that question. You, you know. I said, but... I said here's what I am clear on. He's married, he's got a couple of kids. It's like you're supposed to lead your wife. And that's what part of what they come out in our discussion is and he would admit I'm not doing a good job leading my family spiritually. I was like right now all the discussion about should you be leading more staff is a little bit arbitrary and secondary when the thing cuz that's should you be doing that yes or no? I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of factors should you be leading your wife and your children? absolutely. There's no debate. There's no question. It's, it's just obvious. And so be faithful where God has put you in any kind of leadership responsibility, no matter how seemingly small and insignificant they may be. And if you feel like, I feel like I was made for something greater. Maybe you were. But you know the wisdom of Jesus is this. If you're faithful in little, I'll give you charge of a much. Be faithful wherever you are in your leadership, okay? Um, this guy's in a little bit of a hard marriage. I know his wife. I like his wife. But she can be a little bit of a hard wife to lead sometimes. But it doesn't matter, right? It's like, you're in it now, buddy. So you got to make the most of it. <laughs> Um that, at least one very clear application from this text is this: Take a personal inventory. Where has God put you in a leadership role? You're a business owner. You're a mother with a bunch of young kids. I, you're a teacher, homeschool. I, I don't know. And then, OK God, how can I be faithful? to reflect your image here. How can I be faithful to demonstrate your glory here? How can I be faithful to let your strength be magnified through my weakness? Right? God's God's power is perfected in our weakness. You see, one of the hard things is a lot of times when we are in hard situations, sad situations, awkward situations, confusing anything that's not like a fun easy situation, we can automatically assume Maybe I shouldn't be in this situation. Right? You understand what I'm saying? And listen, let me give you another example. I had a friend call me this week, and uh, he has, I, th- I think I've got this right, since he's graduated, he's always worked in ministries. sometimes worked for churches, sometimes worked for different ministries, and he's working for a ministry now. and He just said, man, I feel like there's this pattern following me that every time I get into a new job, a new ministry, a new church, something hard or bad or weird happens. I don't get along with my boss or blah, 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 you know, and, 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 and listen, and he told me some of the specific situations and some of them were, were very hard and unique and awful. And I said, well, listen, if you can legitimately switch jobs and get away from this boss you don't like, then, then do it. That's, that's a great thing to do. Well, to whatever degree you can legitimately, non sinfully, make your situation better, you should do it. But when you start bumping up against a wall like there's nothing else I can do legitimately, non sinfully to get out of the situation, then you just have to make the most of it. Right, I mean, uh, David anointed to be king, but Saul's still on throne. Saul's trying to kill him. He ran, but he wouldn't kill Saul. Because he's like, running away is legal. Chopping Saul's head off is not legal. Don't take matters into your hand into a sinful way. Now, as I listened to this guy, one of the other things I said to him, because this is what I have to say to myself sometimes, is I said, hey brother, guess what? Welcome to life on planet earth. And I never thought about this until that day. I'm sitting on the phone talking to him. And I said, you know, I grew up in a great godly Christian home. So I've grown up in the church my whole life. And I said, my whole life, because one of his worst stories was a story of a church he was in where he felt like things went really bad. And I said, you know, my whole life I've really been like a plugged in regular attending member of like six different churches my whole life I can, tra- I can track it back around, and I never thought of this. And I said you know what in five of those six churches at some point I've had something really hard and painful happen and the one you know and then the question is, what was the one that you didn't and it was the church that I was a member of when I first moved to Birmingham as a freshman in college at Samford and I was only a member there two years because I didn't get very involved right I mean I went to Sunday school and church and that was it and the more you get on the inside the more you see how the sausage is made the more you can get hurt right? It's like, there's no such thing as a perfect church. And if you find it, don't join it because you'll screw it up because you're not perfect. So, guys, in marriage, one of God's best creations, in the church, one of His grandest gifts to us, when you get hurt, when somebody sins against you, don't be shocked. It's par for the course. Learn how to persevere. Is there a time to speak up and confront? Obviously. Speak the truth in love. Is there a time to be gracious and forgive and overlook? Yes. But I was trying to say to my friend, if you want to switch jobs, you can. I said, but listen, brother, I'm just repeating back to you what you've told me is that you've been working for multiple different ministries in multiple different states, and every single time it's gone bad. It's like, you know what? You might get another job. And find the same thing. So you might just learn how to make the most of it right where you are. Okay. Life is hard. Go back uh, to Psalm chapter 8 for just a second. Psalm chapter 8. Look at the second half of verse 2. Because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. It may have been, I hope that it was, comforting to you earlier as I tried to explain from the text. God is such a good God that in some sense He ties His identity to us. And therefore, the best way for us to understand our identity is to tie it to God. But if you think about verse 2, the second half, for just a second, there's also some bad news, so to speak, with that. Because if I'm going to tie my identity to God... One of the things about God's identity is he has enemies. He has haters. He has adversaries. He has people that are out to try to get revenge against him if they can. And you know the problem? They can't get revenge against God. He's untouchable. He's exalted. He's on a throne. So if people want to hurt God, if they want to attack God and you can't get to God, what's the second best option? You go after his people, and they're very touchable. They're very vulnerable. They're there to be hurt. And so, when you sign up the Christian Life, there's a lot of benefits. I like to tell people we have a great retirement plan, (laughs) but it's going to be a painful journey there. And we don't need to be shot. Paul David Tripp has a book. I think it's about marriage. The title of it is, What Did You Expect? I've never even read it. I just like the title. And it basically <laughs> applies to the whole Christian life. Oh, it's hard? Oh, it's painful? Oh, some, somebody sinned against you? Oh, your own sinful consequences are, seem like they're... What'd you expect? What'd you expect? So back to the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 2. Another place where this passage is quoted. Hebrews chapter 2 as we already said man was made to be the pinnacle of God's creation reflecting God's splendor reflecting God's strength but man quickly sinned and in some sense ruined that reflection but part of what the author of Hebrews is telling us is that God did not give up on his plan one way that you could say it is God just started over so to speak with a second Adam with a second head of humanity, a sinless Adam. Hebrews chapter 2, starting verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. Right? He didn't make angels the steward of creation. He made people, human beings, mankind. But one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him? Or the son of man, and just think about that title for a second, That you were concerned about him. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. I think better translated than God. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subjected to him But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom all are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. You see what the author of Hebrews does? It's really powerful. He says in some sense, Psalm chapter 8 is talking about all human beings, all mankind. But in another, very much more specific way, it's talking about one human being, one man, one son of man, the son of man. Because the rest of us blew it to some degree. And so it only really applies to us in a shadowy way, in a secondary way, in a stained way, in a marred way, in a fumbling forward way. But the Lord Jesus Christ sitting on a throne in heaven with all of his divine privileges. And he lays aside his glory, right? I mean, part of what Adam and Eve did in their sin is they they grasped after more. They were already made in the image of God. They said, it's not enough. I want more. I'm grasping after it. And guys, in our sin, that's what we oftentimes do. I'm not satisfied with the roles you've given me or the way it's going. I'm grasping after more when God says, be content. And the Lord Jesus had everything, and he was incredibly content. And out of that overflowing contentment, he was able to say, I'm not going to grasp on to what I already have. I'll lay it aside. I'll leave my Father's throne above. I'll go down to heaven. I mean, I'll go out of heaven, down to earth, and say, I'm going to die for these sinners. God beat Satan. God beat sin. God beat hell, death, and the grave through weakness. Don't be surprised. Whatever hardship you're going through in your life right now, when you feel like you're put in an incredibly weak place, don't think, something must be wrong. I gotta get out of here. Where's the eject button? <laughs> this may be your greatest moment to reflect back glory to the Father mm-hmm. by letting Him perfect His strength in your unique weakness that you're going through right now. Be faithful where you are. God likes to win through weakness. I mean, there's a right sense in which we could say, God beat sin, Satan, and death, and hell with both his hands tied behind his back. Because he he chose to use a man. Maybe even better. God beat sin, Satan, death, and hell with both his hands nailed to a cross. And that's the center of our salvation. It's the substance. It's the foundation. Reflect that in your leadership, in your perseverance, in your stewardship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for myself. I pray for everybody listening that when we go through hard times, when we suffer, when we're weak, when we're overwhelmed, that we would be able to look to the cross and to the empty tomb, the resurrection, and see that this, this is just your calling card. This is the way that you like to work that you perfect your power and weakness. You've been doing it for thousands of years. We shouldn't be shocked. Perfect your power and my unique weakness, Father. Perfect your power and all of our unique weaknesses and make us faithful as we wait and we persevere by grace. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.